Well, I, it's kind of hard to follow a video like that, like what do I have to tell you about adoption maybe is what you're thinking. What do I have to tell you about orphans? I have not adopted um, a child. In case you were wondering, in case you thought I had one and was just leaving it at home, I do not have a child anywhere. If you don't know me, I'm not married and I have no children, okay? So we'll just get that out there. So maybe you think, like, it seems weird that Mark would ask Sarah to talk about this. Um, He has firsthand experience, and, and what does she have to say? And so I thought I wanted to tell you a little bit about the interaction that I've had with Um, people who, children who are without families. Like Mark said, I've been a few different places in the world and have gotten to see this um, in a few different places. And why, um, as we started to talk about kind of the teaching calendar for the year and we were talking about Orphan Sunday, I said, Mark, I would love to get to speak. Um, And I would love the opportunity to to talk about why I care about this. And so even if um, some of you are like, I don't care what she says, I am not adopting a baby when I walk out of here. Like I am too young or too old or it's not happening. Okay, I get it, right? Like I'm not signing up to adopt a baby this week either. Um, But I think that this has something to do with all of us. So wherever you're at, I would ask for you to just hang in with me for the next 30 minutes and let's just see what it is that God has to say. So um, my whole journey when it came to understanding like what it meant to be an orphan and for orphans to be um, cared for, I I knew some people growing up who had been adopted, but it wasn't until I was in college and um, I had gone to visit a friend of mine over spring break during my senior year and I saw this documentary about kids in the country of Uganda, which is in Africa. And uh, maybe you've seen it. The documentary is called Invisible Children. They've had kind of a long run with all kinds of things that they've done to try to provide justice for these children. I just want to show you a really brief clip. Um, This actually isn't from the documentary. It's another uh, video that they then released later. But it gives you just kind of a brief snapshot into the lives that these children were living. So we're going to watch this video, and then I'll kind of tie it together for you. If you're unfamiliar with what was happening in Uganda and what still continues to happen there, just not to the same uh, 
level of severity. There's an army, a rebel army in the north that um, people no longer wanted to join to fight with this rebel army. And so the leader of this army took to invading people's homes um, at night while they were sleeping. And he would abduct the children. He would make the girls sex slaves and he would make the boys child soldiers. And so tens of thousands of children were stolen from their families and forced to fight. As a result, what you hear Innocent talking about here, this little boy named Innocent, is that children began to leave their homes when they lived out in the villages. They would leave their homes and they would walk into a town where they could spend the night in a hospital or in a school so that they were kind of all gathered together in one place because the rebels were less likely to come into a town to abduct them. And so what Innocent tells us is that for 10 years, that's what he did every morning and every evening. In the evening, the kids would flock to these kind of more urban centers so that they could sleep in safety. And then in the morning, they would walk home, they would go to school, they would see their family for maybe a couple of hours, and then in the evening, they would do the same thing again. Every child in northern Uganda was doing this. And so maybe you would say, like, okay, technically by the definition of orphan, that he doesn't qualify as an orphan. And yet when I think about what it means to be a child and to experience life as a child, this little boy is not doing it. He has been ripped from his family and put into a situation that is just unbelievable. And so this, when I realized that this was happening, I thought like, what is going on? Like, no one is talking about this. No one's talking about this. How is this possible? And so um, I wanted to see it for myself. And so a few months after this, I had graduated from college and um, was working as a substitute teacher, which means you only have to work when you want to, which was awesome. So I um, took about a month off and I went to Uganda and actually got to meet some of these children. Um, I have a picture of just a few of the kids that I met while I was there. Um, This is a class of like fifth graders who um, are not in the, they weren't in the war affected area, but these kids go to a school that is um, an AIDS, it's a school for AIDS orphans. And um, so many of these kids had lost their parents to AIDS. Um, Some of these children were infected with AIDS, there was a little girl who um, I think was like five or six years old, and one of the um, Africans there who was working in this orphanage said that they had uh, stopped giving her the medication uh, that they gave to kids who were infected with AIDS that helped to kind of lessen the, the side effects, lessen the, the pain of the whole thing. They had stopped giving that medication to her because she was so far gone, there was nothing left that they could do. A little girl who was like five... And I came home from Uganda and I thought, what am I supposed to do? What, what am I supposed to do? Uganda is not the only country where kids like this are hurt, are without families, are dying. In fact, the more that I learn and the more that I know, it's not just happening other places, it's happening here that there are kids that are without families and maybe they're not walking every night to protect their lives, but they're people, children, who are defenseless. And what I like to do is to just kind of pretend like it's not happening because it's easier to pretend like it's not happening than to have to step in and do something. So, like Mark was saying, I don't say all of that to you to make you feel guilty. I just want you to know that this is where it started for me. I started to meet kids like this. I saw this video. I met these children. And it started kind of this 
unrest in me. I started to feel unsettled. I started to think, what am I supposed to do? As a 22-year-old substitute teacher living in a one-bedroom apartment with somebody else, the solution was not to like bring all of those kids home with me. But what am I supposed to do? And um, in the video, Erica read a verse to you. We're just going to put it up on the screen. I'm not going to have you turn to it. But I know that this verse is in Scripture. James 1.27 is one that we go to often. Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. And so I know that. You know that. It's not like you're sitting here going like, no, I don't think God cares about orphans. I just don't really think that matters to him. We know that this is part of what it means to practice true faith. And yet, it's hard, I think, to figure out how do I integrate that into my everyday. If I'm being honest, the reason that it's difficult for me is because I'm far more selfish than I want to admit to anybody. There have been a couple of passages, actually, that I've had the chance to um, look at at school. I teach Bible to 10th graders, which is awesome and awful all at the same time, Um, because my kids are crazy. Uh, But we've had the chance, we work through the Gospels, and we look at Jesus' life and what he taught. And we've looked at a couple of passages in the last couple of weeks that as I teach it to them, I can see that they're really wrestling through it. And it is also, it's one of those things that's making me miserable, too. Like I teach it and I'm trying to teach the principles to them and then I go home and I think like, I'm such a hypocrite because I do not live these things that we're talking about. So I want to share those passages with you today. And, and as we look at these, again, please hear me that this is not like I have this all figured out and that I'm so good at this because I'm not. But there's these ideas that resonate in the things that Jesus talks about throughout his ministry. And if I could really start to get my head and my heart around the things that Jesus says, the way that I'm supposed to live my life, it absolutely would change the way that I thought about orphans, the way that I thought about children who are in need. We're going to start in Luke chapter 10. If you have a Bible, if um, you can turn there. If you don't have a Bible, um, we have swamp Bibles under the chair in front of you. Um, It's page 794 in the swamp Bible. We're turning to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, and we're going to start in verse 25. So um, as Jesus would travel around and do ministry, he wasn't super popular with the religious people in town. And um, often they would try to ask him questions that would trip him up. Uh, I had a professor in college that I used to do this to, and she was super nice to me. I don't know why, because if someone did that to me, I would be nasty to that kid. But um, Jesus always handles things really well because he's Jesus. Sometimes he uh, rebukes, kind of like sets the person straight who's asking, you a, who's asking him a question. In this passage, he pulls like the, um, the stereotypical, this is what all teachers love to do. My students hate it when I do this to them. We're going to start in verse 25. If you've ever been a student, you're going to pick up on what Jesus does here. One day an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, What must I do to receive eternal life? Now, not a bad question, right? I mean, I think most of us, if someone came to us and said, hey, I want eternal life, we'd be like, woohoo, you know, like, yes, let's do this. Let me explain it to you. Let me explain the process. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus says this. Jesus replied in verse 26, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? 
So this is um, the teacher tactic that all teachers pull. When a kid asks a question, oh, what does this mean? And the teacher goes, what do you think it means? My students hate it when I do that. You probably all feel the same way. Like if I knew what it meant, I wouldn't have asked you. Like that's why I'm asking you the question. So Jesus pulls stereotypical teacher move here and says, what do you read in God's word? What do you think? What does God's word have to say about eternal life? And then in verse 27, the man replied like this. The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. At this point, this, I think we read this and you go like, yeah, we know, love God, love people. We know this. Sarah, this is like not rocket science. But think about the question that was asked. How do I receive eternal life? And the man says, well, to receive eternal life, I think we have to love God and love people. I don't know about you, but often when we talk about eternal life, we talk about it as this personal relationship with Jesus. Eternal life has to do with how you relate to God, and that's true. But this man also includes the fact that if you want to have eternal life, it should change the way that you love people. I think we know that in our heads, but we don't always tie those two ideas together. No, 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 no. It, does, it doesn't have to do with the way that I interact with people. It has to do with my relationship with God. That's what really matters. And listen, that's true. I'm not trying to teach like, okay, you have to do some sort of good works to get saved. Adopt a baby or you're going to hell. Like that, that's not what I'm saying. And yet there's this implication here that if I love God, it changes the way that I love people. And Jesus affirms that he's correct. If you look in verse 28, it's too dark up here for me to be able to see. Verse 28, right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. Jesus affirms the fact that my eternal life is found in the way that I love God. And then as I love God, it should change the way that I love people. You know that you're supposed to love people. You know that. And yet this passage, it like puts more pressure on the whole thing, I think. Because it can be really easy for me. I'll just let you into my own world. It's really easy for me to like, when I get home from school, I'm done talking to all people. And I just want to sit in my house and I will read my Bible and I will journal. And if you want to come over and hang out, like maybe if you bring ice cream, we can do that. But probably not, okay? I'm good at loving people. I can be good at loving people like on my timetable, on my time frame. Like if I've set it up, if I've established it. But if you're going to interrupt kind of the flow of what I have going on, this is really annoying to me. That's just me being honest. It's easy to love people in my definition of what I want it to look like. But if it's going to cost me something, if it's going to interrupt my world, if it's going to take something that I don't really feel like giving, I'm not so good at it. Now, here's what's interesting. From here, the man, he seems to maybe be a little bit like me because he asks another question. Well, then who's my neighbor, Jesus? Who am I supposed to love? If I'm supposed to love God and love people, there's a lot of people in my world, so who am I supposed to love? And Jesus tells a story that most of us are probably familiar with, the Good Samaritan. Tells a story of a man who's been beaten up, left to die on the side of the road, 
And two people, two religious people, walk right on by without stopping to help. And then this Samaritan man, this man who probably would have been enemies with this guy, you know the story, you've heard it, right? He's the one who stops and helps, and we say, okay, see, so this is how I'm supposed to love. I'm supposed to love somebody like the good Samaritan loves people. And we kind of blow through the story so that we can get to the good Samaritan, and I don't know about you, but I, um, my grandma used to make me watch this cartoon version of this called McGee and Me, and so I have that cartoon version stuck in my head. A couple of you, yes, McGee and Me. Okay, one of my students was like, do you mean Magoo? And I said, that's a different cartoon. That guy was a blind guy. Um, So no, if you're thinking Mr. Magoo, that's something else. As I read this story, it's really easy for me to just switch into cartoon story kind of time. And I miss the fact that What Jesus is saying here is that true love is really costly. If that priest or that Levite, the first two guys, they were both religious people who would have worked in the temple, if they would have stopped to help this man, uh, because he's laying on the side of the road and he's bleeding, by Jewish law, that made him ceremonially unclean. So that means if this Jewish, if these religious people stop to help him and they touch him, they also become unclean. Now, these two guys, it seems, by the way the story is told, they were on their way to work, meaning they were on their way to the temple where they would have helped um, other people connect to God, where they would have offered sacrifices for other people so that they could be in relationship with God. If they stop to help this man, they touch his bloody body, not only is it going to cost them time, but now they've become unclean, which means that by the time they get to the temple, they can't just jump in and do their jobs. First, they have to offer a sacrifice for their cleansing, which means they're going to have to pay for that sacrifice. Then they have to wait the appropriate amount of time before they're declared clean again. So this is not just like, oh, it's kind of inconvenient. Like when I see someone with a flat tire on the side of the road and I think I should help them, but I don't. It's far more costly than that. So I think that when these two religious people, when they got to their jobs in Jerusalem, if they said, like, you know what, I saw this guy and he was bleeding on the side of the road and I feel kind of bad because I didn't stop to help. I think most of their friends would have said, like, oh, no, we get it. That it would have cost too much. No one's blaming you. That would have been, been a really serious decision. You know, then you're unclean. Then everyone around here is probably going to judge you because you've become unclean. Because let's be honest, religious people are really good at that, Right. So not only is it going to cost you time and money, but it's going to cost you because people are probably going to say nasty things about you, maybe in front of your face, but probably behind your back. So no one's blaming you that you didn't stop to help. And when I read this story, I identify with those two people. I am way more often like those two guys than I am like the Good Samaritan. Because it cost the Good Samaritan something too. It cost him time. It cost him money. And for heaven's sake, culturally, this guy is his enemy. This was not an easy decision. And yet, the Good Samaritan goes, this guy needs help, and I'm going to help him. When I read this story, it is overwhelming to me that what Jesus is saying to you and to me is that if I love God, love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, if I love God that way, then I should be willing to love people in a way that costs me something. Loving people 
when they're easy to love, like that's whatever, we all do that, right? Like when your roommate or your spouse brings flowers and cupcakes home, you're not like, gosh, you're so hard to love. But when your roommate or your spouse like does everything wrong in a day, like makes your house a disaster and doesn't do any of the things that you ask them to do and is just everything that they say is obnoxious, are you still going to choose to love them? True love is costly. So to bring us back to this idea of how do we care about the orphan? How do we care about the child who is in need? I will show you my cards. Sometimes I don't want to do anything because it's going to cost me something. It's going to cost me dollars, which I don't feel like I have very many of. It's going to cost me time, which I also feel like I don't have a lot of extra. So... God, it's not that I don't care about the orphan. It's just like my boundaries are pretty tight here. And when I read this story, it forces me to stop and to go. It's really easy for me to say, yeah, I love the orphan. I went to Uganda and I worked in an AIDS orphanage. Did you? You know, like that's, that's what I want to think and that's how I want to act. But how gross is that? Do I actually care in a way that causes me to love these children who are in need in a sacrificial way. The other thing that I think really brings this home is um, in Matthew 25, and you can turn there if you'd like, Matthew 25, uh, the page number, 754. Jesus tells another story. Um, He tells this story about The end of time, he says, at the end of time, uh, Jesus is going to put people on two sides of him, on the right and the left. He calls one group the sheep and the other group the goats. And um, if we pick it up in verse 34, it says, then the king, we're talking about God here, then the king will say to those on the right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink or a stranger and show you hospitality or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will tell them, I assure you, when you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it for me. As if the story in Luke chapter 10 isn't compelling enough to me. This connection between if I love God, then it must change the way that I love people. Jesus ups the ante in this story. And he says, quite literally, the way that we treat people, particularly the least of people, the most helpless, the most in need, the most difficult to love, The way that we treat those people, Jesus says, it's like you're treating me that way. He's going to go on to say in the rest of this chapter, he turns to the other group of people and he says basically that same list of things. He says, I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty. You didn't give me something to drink. I was in prison. You didn't visit me. I was naked and you didn't clothe me. And these people go like, whoa, whoa, Jesus, if we would have seen you in any of those situations, we would have helped you. Right, like if we left here and Jesus was like sitting on the side of the road with a sign that said Jesus, and also he was like hungry and thirsty, most of us would probably stop. 
It's Jesus. So they're going like, Jesus, if we would have seen you that way, we would have helped you. And he goes, you saw people in need throughout your life and you did nothing to help them. And because you didn't help those people, it's just like you didn't help me. This is not intended, how many times can we say this, to guilt trip you. Because I read these verses and man, this is heavy on my heart. It is difficult for me to think about the fact that there are people that are the least of these in my life that I don't do a very good job loving. And it is hard for me to think about the fact that there are kids in our city, in our state, in our country, and around the world who are in need. And I just blow through my day-to-day doing the things that make me comfortable and make me happy, and I don't even take time to ask God, what is it that you would have me do? Is there something that you would have me do? Is there some way that I can enter into this situation? Is there something that I can do? If I genuinely believed that these passages were true, if I genuinely, I read an article this week that said this guy was talking to an, his friend who was an atheist, and his friend said, wait, you believe that the Bible is God's word, right? Like God actually like, wanted you, like he's, those are his ideas, his words, he wrote them down. And the Christian says, yes, I do believe that. And he said, if I believed that there was a book that had God's words in it, I would believe the crap out of that thing, which is, you know, a really elegant way to say that. But For real, if I really believe that this is God's word and that he says, if I love him, it should change the way that I love people. And if I really love the people around me, if if I really love the least of these, that's the way that I'm actually loving God, then that absolutely should move me to some sort of action. And as if we needed any other encouragement There's this idea that has been alluded to several times, and we're just going to put these verses up on the screen. It comes from Ezekiel chapter 16. Um, This idea is kind of all over the place, but the way that it says it in Ezekiel, I think, is really beautiful. This is God talking to the nation of Israel, but we see that these principles apply to us as his followers as well. On the day that you were born, no one cared about you. Your umbilical cord was not cut, and you were never washed, rubbed with salt, and wrapped in cloth. No one had the slightest interest in you. No one pitied you or cared for you. On the day you were born, you were unwanted, dumped in a field, and left to die. But I came by and saw you there, helplessly kicking about in your own blood. As you lay there, I said, live, and I helped you to thrive like a plant in the field. You grew up and became a beautiful jewel. The reason that we are called to care for the least of these The reason that any of this should matter, the reason that this should resonate so deeply with our hearts is because all of us were unwanted and God chose us to save us and to make us his own. We were without a family before God intervened. And if God is going to do that for me, if he is going to take a risk on me, if he is going to provide me with some sort of purpose some sort of hope, some sort of family, some sort of eternal sense of belonging. And I think that we can all agree that that's what our hearts are so hungry for. I know what it is to feel lonely. 
I know what it is to feel lost. And to understand that God chose me to give me a sense of belonging when I didn't deserve it and no one else was going to give it to me. That is this gracious gift that he's laid on me. And now I sit in my house and I go, I'm too busy to do that for anybody else. That's gross. And again, that's me. That's my heart. I am just being honest with you. So what do we do moving forward? What do we do? For some of you, truly, some of you, God may be laying on your heart this, this idea of foster care or of adoption. Um, the older that I get, uh, I think I was talking to Mark and Kristen about this the other day. It is awesome to me to get to look at like Facebook where I don't actually talk to most of those people anymore. I just like to scroll through their pictures. But lots of people that we went to, to college with, um, people that I've known in different times of my life, adoption is something that's happening in people's families all over the place. And I think that is a really beautiful thing. So maybe you're not sure what that's supposed to look like. Maybe you're like, holy cow, we've got a bunch of kids already and they're insane and you want me to add another one? I've heard that once you have three, adding any more is just like, whatever, it's just kind of all the same. So, um, but if you want to, maybe that's you. Maybe as you're listening to this, you're going like, that's, that is what I need to start thinking about. I need to start thinking about foster care. I need to start thinking about adoption. We need to talk about this as a family. I am certain that if you have questions, the Artrips would love to talk to you. The Hunters would love to talk to you. These are people who are part of our family who have walked through this process. And they'll be honest with you. They'll tell you the good, the bad, and the ugly about all of it. I mean, it seems like, could there be anything ugly about Mercy and Bear? But uh, there might be, right? So, like, they'll tell you the truth about this whole process. Some of you are like, that's just not where I'm at. I live in a dorm, so adopting a child would probably be a bad idea. Um... And yet this doesn't mean like this is a someday thing for you. We live in this world where there are all kinds of opportunities for us to support orphans who live in countries all over the place. Some of you maybe do that already. Um, On some of the chairs, there are these cards that say, um, dream, breathe, give life. Nope, dream, breathe, live, give. Um, I should have put one up here so I could read it. We partner with an organization in Haiti. If you've been here, you know this. They're called CPR3. And um, they have a program set up so that we can actually sponsor kids in Haiti. The thing that I think is really awesome about that, now Compassion, World Vision, these other organizations are awesome organizations. But if you partner with a child in Haiti, there's then the opportunity for you to actually go on a trip with us to Haiti and meet the child that you're sponsoring. And meet this kid who has the opportunity to go to school and to eat and to have clean water and clean clothing because you have decided to sacrificially give and to love this kid. For some of you, you maybe think like, okay, there's like, you know, millions of orphans around the world. What's my $40 a month going to do to help that? You as an individual are not going to solve the issue of orphan care around the world. But you as an individual have the opportunity to solve the issue of orphan care for one child. You have the opportunity to impact the world with one kid. And imagine what that means. That this child's life is different because you decided to say, I understand that I have been adopted 
And so now I need to extend that love to somebody else. Uh, there's a statistic that says that if every, every family in the churches in America would take foster care and adoption seriously, there would be no more orphans in America, which is ridiculous to me. Like, how is that true? And if that's true, then why in the world are we not doing it? We want, as a church, we want this to be part of our heart. We want this to be part of what we care about. We want to be a place that cares about people who are lost and who are broken and who are in need. And this is just one piece of that puzzle. So as we leave here today, in some ways, I'm not going to apologize if your heart feels kind of heavy. Because I think that that's good. I think it's good that we walk out of here going, man, there is a lot of hurt in the world and a lot of kids who need help. Yes, that's true. And we need to keep that in front of our faces. But it's not, they are not without hope. And we get to be part of the solution. So as we leave here, if sponsorship is something that's interesting to you, grab one of these cards. The, you can go to the website and all of the information is right there. If foster care or adoption is interesting to you, will you please stop and talk to the art trips? The hunters aren't here, bad timing. Um, talk to the art trips, talk to the hunters. Find out more about what the next steps are. But my, my encouragement to you and my challenge to you is to do something today. Whether that's to go on the website today or to shoot Mark a text or an email today or to send an email to Don, do something today because it's so easy to walk out of here and go, I'll deal with it later, and then you just don't. We want to become a place where this is part of who we are and what we do. So I'm going to pray. And as I pray, I want you specifically to ask God, what do you want from me? What, what do you want from me? What does it look like for me to love in a way that is costly? I don't like asking that question because it's uncomfortable. But if I love God, it changes the way that I love people. It absolutely must. What is it that God is laying on your heart today? How is he asking you to step into this situation? What is he asking you to do to address the needs of orphans around the world? Jesus, thank you that you um, were not afraid to talk about things that are challenging. Thank you that you are... You never shied away from topics that made people uncomfortable or upset. And God, thank you that these things um, continue to resonate with our hearts even today. God, I confess that I am so selfish so much of the time and that that impacts the way that I interact with people in my day-to-day life, but also the way that I, I don't even think about the fact that there are kids who are in need all over the place. God, thank you for adopting us even though we didn't ask to be adopted. Thank you that you loved us even when we were not easy to love, even though we continue to not be easy to love. And God, I pray for each of us in this room uh, that your Holy Spirit would lay something on our hearts. God, not that we would feel guilty. I pray that people don't walk out of here feeling guilty because that's not the point of today but that we would walk out of here with some sort of, some sort of unsettled feeling, like there's an issue in the world and there's something that I can do about it. Thank you that your Holy Spirit knows each one of us. You know our hearts, you know our situations, you know our finances, 
you know, our marital status and our family status and our housing situation, you know, all of those things. And God thinks that you don't ask us to do things that are unreasonable or impossible, but that you know us enough to know exactly what you can push us towards. God, will you make us receptive to your spirit today? Help us to not just shove this to the back of our minds or to walk out of here and to stop thinking about it. But help us as we join with the thousands of other churches in our country who are talking about this today. Help us to be a church in our community who makes a difference in the lives of orphans around the world. Thank you that you've invited us to join you in this, that we get to be part of bringing light to a dark world. We pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus.